So welcome to Behind the Mirror, a place where students in an online program can have the experience of sitting in a professor's office just like you would in a brick and mortar uh, program, getting all the things you can only get from those little in-between conversations. Today I have a friend of mine, Denise Walker, ABD. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jordan. Oh, yeah. I had to rub that in there. You did. Are you going to put that on all your uh, cards and stuff, ABD? You know that I'm not putting that on <laughs> any of my cards. Come November 9th, I won't have to put that on any of my cards. Ah, uh, there it is. That's my now, now, let me just explain to mm-hmm. all the students listening. Yes. Um, whenever you are finished with the coursework in a doc program, yeah. You are all but dissertation, right? That's the last thing that you have to do. Right. And some people who, I'm just going to say, and I shouldn't say this, but they're basically tacky. <laughs> they're tacky <people. laughs> it is. It's they so... will put ABD as though it's an acronym. It's not an acronym. Yeah. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. So you nothing. defend and you pass your defense. You don't get an acronym. Right. Right. It means that you've taken the classes and now the real work begins. That's what ABD means. <laughs> That's what ABD means. Yeah. 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 So if you ever, you know, go into a doc program and you uh, finish all your coursework, do not put ABD on your on anything. Please don't. <laughs> just, I, just I, I, I will. Yeah, and I will really <laughs> talk about you in my head. Like, I, I was talking about you too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll probably send a text to Jordan and be like, Jordan, look, another one. <laughs> Nah. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, but thank certain... you for clearing it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm gonna put that on the on the uh, on, on like the like post though. Like when I okay. put this up, I'm gonna put Denise Walker ABD and have okay. you on the on the on the hit shot. You do that. You do that. <laughs> I will spam you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Now, one of the things I was really excited to talk with you about is doing in home therapy. Mm-hmm. Um. I know that for me going into an in-home situation was such a shock, not just because it was people's homes, but because it was nothing like I was taught about when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I would love to touch base with you on that. Before we get there, though, I guess I wanted to know, like, how did you become a counselor? Like, like what brought you into the field of therapy? Were you yeah. one of those just, like, delinquent kids and somebody just changed your life? And- <laughs> Never was a delinquent child. <laughs> I was a golden child, Jordan. I was the child. Um, and then my parents love. No, I'm just <laughs> they do love me. But, but really though. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I was yeah, I have a halo or whatever. But no, seriously. Um long well, I don't want to say long story short, but the way that I really came about deciding to go into therapy was the fact that I worked as a, between undergrad and going back to get my master's degree, I worked as a long-term substitute teacher in an alternative school where, although I wasn't that delinquent, um, all my students were. <laughs> and um, so just seeing children doped up on medication, sleep all day um, from different diagnoses and not really understanding those, and um, let me let me make sure that I'm tracking with you. By different medication, you mean okay. different um, medical chemicals, not like illicit right. chemicals, like like the legal chemicals that we prescribe by the doctors. So by. let's say legal and illegal. Legal and illegal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, legal and illegal. Um, because of had being diagnosed with different behavioral issues. Right. Um, and so you know that 
the first year that I taught, it was fine. It was great. Um, I really enjoyed the students. So the second year, I was on the side where the alternative students, so everyone that had gotten kicked out of their home school came. And every day, I just came home just feeling as if, what am I doing? Because how can we educate anybody when they have so much more going on outside of these, you know, seven, six and a half, seven hours of school and having administrators want to, well, you need to do more to keep them awake. This child probably, and this is, this is my rationale. I was like, this child probably had to fight all last night. And you really think that they care about coming to school. This is their rest resting period. Like this is the only piece that they ever get. And so I started to think, I was I knew that, well, teaching wasn't my end-all be-all. Like, I wanted to be a physician's assistant and decided not to do that. And that's how I ended up being a substitute for a year. Um, like, I don't want to do this. But so I started looking into counseling programs. My mom was actually in a counseling program at uh, Louisiana Tech. And she was like, well, you should look at Tech. And I was like, eh, no, thank you. I don't want to go to Tech. I mean, <laughs> no offense to Tech, <laughs> you know, Bulldogs. I mean, you have your own, you know, whatever. Um, and she was going on Barksdale um, in Bulger City. So I was like, yeah, that's not, I'm, I'm too young for that. I don't want to be in the classroom with everyone that's um, just gotten off work and they have families. So then I looked back at ULM and I saw the marriage and family therapy program. And I was like, this is kind of speaking to me. This is, you know, what I was talking about, uh, the, the systemic aspect of knowing that these relationships are influencing the way that these children are coming into the classroom. And so I decided to interview. I got all my recommendation letters and everything together and came in for the interview and started in the fall of 2012 and ended in, you know, graduated in May of 2014. The rest is history. The rest is history. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah, which is actually how we met, right? I used to um, watch you and another friend of ours do counseling behind the one-way mirror, and I was—I'm not gonna lie—I was a little—I was a little in awe of both of you. Really? Like such naturals, yeah, yeah. Jordan, don't tell me that now. <laughs> no, tell, tell, tell me this now. I need to hear this now. I'm serious. Yeah, um, I saw you guys, and I was like, "Yeah, you guys are some of the rare, real deals." And it was it was really um, it was really weird because you know therapy is a weird profession. We don't really watch each other do work, right? Yeah. And so I hadn't seen a lot of um, people work. Mm-hmm. I think up to that point, you guys were easily the best that I'd seen work. Wow. Easily. And then I was a part of the minority fellowship program, and we saw, and I was all excited. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a doc student. I'm a fellow. I'm going to see someone just do magic. Yeah, and so we have this training, and this lady was doing brief strategic therapy, okay. but she was doing an evidence-based version of it, not the you know stuff that we're taught, and it was horrible. It was the worst. I cannot believe she was showing this as a video um, of what was good therapy, and everybody was just like, "Yeah." Huh? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, isn't that, isn't that always the way it is? Though, like, it's like, <laughs> like, oh my god, you're such a therapeutic god. And like, no, it's not. No. no, I think I think that they were all just too afraid to say anything, really, because it was it was it was not it wasn't good. Okay. <laughs> the whole time the lady was interrupting mom and um, mm-hmm. cutting mom off and like trying to get mom to see you know things a different way. Mom was like, ah, I'm not, yeah. I don't know, no. 
Um, so those were like my two contrasts. And that's for me, when the world started to like break down, I was like, this is really good. Yeah. And this is really bad. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I always thought that you and Gerard were kind of naturals. If I'm being honest, yeah. Jordan, I need to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the funny thing about it is like no matter, and I think that's a, um, that's a way of being that we should all try to keep the humility that we all need as clinicians, no matter how long we, I mean, because um, four years ago, you know, graduated a little over four years ago, and I still feel like I have those, days where or really months <laughs> like that where it's like I am bombing this and what did I ever come into this profession for and then you have those aha moments like just talking with somebody else a colleague and um them just pouring into you when you need it the most or a client that's really like this this has been so beneficial to me I really can see how been how great my family can be that hope I guess they instilled into them because that's honestly what therapy is about in my, is having hope for someone that doesn't. Yeah. So yeah. even you just had hope for me when I didn't even know that you had hope for me and you I told did. me at the right time. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you go from like, so what was your career sort of? Cause you finished your, your grad program and then mm-hmm. did you go straight into in-home or did you go into something else or? So the way that I got into in-home, I was actually an intern. So like for our externships um, to get our clinical, you know, requirements to graduate, I had two externships where, you know, actually getting field work. The first one I did juvenile uh, drug court which was conducted where at, I saw you. Right. This is where you saw me. This is where we first met. We I think we had the same clinic. We had the same clinic night. It was Thursday nights. I was I, doing my, I was doing my supervision course. Oh so I okay. was down there supervising on that gotcha. night. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's how you saw the magic. Hmm. Nice. But no. <laughs> 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 um so yeah, I had juvenile drug court. And so that was my first externship. And that's when, you know, the student it was teenagers, average teenagers. I've always had this theme of working with average teenagers, obviously. From um, mm-hmm. you know, as I look at it, it kind of follows me. Because um, they have all the they have all the all the money, you know. So that's oh what, yeah, the, <laughs> duh, that's, that's what the big bucks are. Because <laughs> that's obviously what my mind is. <laughs> Where can I make the most money? Work with juveniles? No. <laughs> oh my goodness! Stop! You're depressing me. Um, <laughs> But uh, so that was my first externship. And so then I also applied at the um, a community agency, the Center for Children and Families. And I interviewed with, crazy thing about it, all of my cohort that interviewed there, interviewed with the supervisor. I was the only one that interviewed with the director of therapeutic services at that time. Right. The only one, which is so crazy because it's like she and I could never coordinate times to actually meet together. And she was like, look, you and I have been trying to make time to meet with each other for maybe a couple of weeks. What I want to do is I'm just going to put you in his presence and, you know, interview with him. So um, that's how I got my start. I believe April of 2013, I began working as an intern at the Center for Children and Families doing in-home therapy, carrying a caseload of like six to eight clients going in their homes. I was in this rural town, Rayville, Louisiana. That's where all my <laughs> clients were. I think it's like 3,900 people. sounds like the beginning of like a civil rights <laughs> era movie. 
Rayville, Louisiana, going into homes. With the best food that they have, and anybody will tell you, is the Popeyes there. They they brag on their Popeyes. Yeah, this is the beginning of like somebody starts to march and somebody starts to sing. I know, I know, I know. It's like a sailing remake, but I never did get that. I never got that opportunity. But um, that's where I got my my beginning in for in home. And then I worked as after I graduated, I was at um, at the time Louisiana had LMFTIs, which are LMFT interns. I registered with the state board and worked under Bethany Simmons for like three months. She was my supervisor before I moved over to Commerce, Texas to begin my doctoral work. And I stayed in Commerce for a little over a year. Some about me in the juvenile at-risk youth as well as rural cities or rural towns. I just keep getting drawn to those as well. Um, But I decided to come back. I moved back to Shreveport. That's where I'm originally from. And began to continue working in home, but this time I did evidence-based multisystemic therapy (MST), and I did that for a couple of years, as well as supervised uh, um, a team of therapists who were just doing regular, um, like non-evidence-based program therapy. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, so, what was it like getting into the the into people's homes, seeing where they were in their own sort of environments? Yeah, um, literally, I, I, and I, I don't think I'll ever forget this. As I was driving to Ravel to meet with my first client, um, I literally said, oh, my goodness, I'm about to mess up somebody's life. Like, <laughs> worse than they already were. <laughs> and then to think about it, like, I had, you know, we had transitioned or whatever um, from who were the second years. They were, we had taken over any cases that they had, any transfer cases. And I had been seeing clients, you know, for a little while, but going into someone's home, I was like, what am I going to run into? How do I introduce myself? I literally, like, I'm I'm so far-fetched to the point of, I have to think about driving into somebody's driveway. Like, where do I park? I don't want to park in their driveway. I don't want to, you know, what if they don't use their front door? What if they use their side door? How, do, how am I supposed to know these things? And, yeah, it, it, it was so much about me. It was it was just me focused. I was like, yeah, you got your problems or whatever, but uh, I'm coming into your house and I got to get me together first. And that has shifted. Thank goodness it shifted somewhat. But um, yeah, just going in the first time, it was just the unknown. The crazy thing about it, you know, this is what my dissertation is on. No, oh, wow. Yeah, this is what my dissertation is on. This is the, the my experience, my the intern's experience of providing home-based therapy. And one of the major themes that has come out of this is so all of my participants basically said something about the unknown, like a feeling of ambiguity that comes along with it. And it's just scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like that's as, as I have gone um, and, you know, I read way too much. I read way too much and I look for patterns and things. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that we know Mm -hmm. is that the unknown and uncertainty it's always scary. Correct. Always scary. Correct. And when something is scary, our number of options that we see shrinks. Very much right? so. And yeah. so. And so, you know, if you can make something more predictable, 
then your confidence goes up and you're literally smarter, right? You, you can see more options. You can yeah. see where, where to move. And I mean, I definitely experienced that in my own um, in-home, you know, early days. I remember talking to my supervisor saying, hey, I don't know what's going on. Will you come <laughs> out with me? And she was like, yeah. ah, you'll be fine. fine. <laughs> just go hold hope. You know? Right. Just hold, yeah. just be that beacon. Yeah. I don't have hope for myself. So uh, I can't be hope for them. <laughs> but no, I, yeah. I, 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 I concur with all of that. Um, it was always so weird. Just looking at my personality, thinking back on it. I, I'm still very much so growing um, because I am a, I like, I'm a solutions person. Like I don't like, so the way that you, you went to your, your supervisor, I would never have that much courage to say, Hey, I need you to come out with me. Like if I'm going to fail, I'm just going <laughs> to <gonna> bomb. <laughs> and I'm going to feel horrible about it. I'm going to beat up on myself, but nobody's going to know that I'm feeling that way. And, um, that's so crazy. Like I forgot something with my, my old supervisor when I was still an intern, something I failed to tell her. And she was like, you didn't think that was important to tell me? I was like, eh. I was something that was going on with me. I was like, eh, I do now. Like, in the grand scheme of things, I see what the importance could have been. But, yeah, I just didn't have that courage. Now I do. I do have that courage. Yeah. If, I'm, if I feel as if I'm sinking or drowning or something, hey, rescue me. Help me. And it may not even be you pulling me out of this, but just give me something. So in your, in your research, right, and in your experience, mm-hmm. What's if if one of the biggest things that you experience and that people consistently say they have as a problem is it is completely cloudy, right? This whole in-home world is so cloudy and murky, and I don't know what's going on. Right. Like, what's one of the ways that like maybe we should structure programs differently? So I I know for for me, one of my even my implications and my recommendations is saying, hey, we need to really expose people who are in the field, asking them network with these people to ask them to come into class to have like a guest lecture Mm -hmm. to kind of inform students on, hey, this is a setting that you could go into. And just depending on where you're living, you know, statewide, you might go into it after graduation. It's, it's a high percentage that you may go into this working towards licensure. So exposing them beforehand, before actually walking out post-graduation and feeling as if, oh, I have all the knowledge that I need and just being ignorant to the fact that people are actually being seen in their homes. So whether that's through mentorship programs from other, you know, students who are interns, if they if you do have people in your programs that are interns who are providing community based and home based therapy, how about you try to have some like little brown bag sessions for students to begin even in their first semester or first year saying, hey, these are options for you. Um, like I say, clinicians who are, are, are directors or whomever are over internship programs or just over the, the programs that are offered, uh, the clinical programs that are offered in these community agencies coming in and being guest lecturers for students um, to provide them with, with the, the knowledge, just even the, the knowledge base of this is what I do. This is how I function in what I do. This is the successes that I've had. And these are the failures that I've also had. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you're, or I won't make, I won't put you on the spot, but do you feel like master's programs in general prepare people for that? 
Because it I sounds like <laughs> I will answer that very quickly. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> there was not a lot of that on the front. There was not. No, no, no. There is not. Um, and if they do have that experience, it's because they have served in a bachelor's level position first. So more of that support, mm, the yeah. community support position. Whereas that also creates a um, blurred line or a merger because like, well, what's the difference? I've been doing this, you know, for the past four years and in my undergrad because at 18 and as long as I got a high school diploma and a driver's license, I'm able to provide this uh, psychiatric support, you know, um, right. whereas I'm helping with, with living skills. And so how is that any different than what a therapist or a counselor comes in and, and does? So, um, long no, to answer your question, we are definitely missing dropping the ball on exposing students. Yeah, so it sounds like, at least from your point of view, that you feel like the people who, the only people who really have the experience of working in home, mm -hmm. are those who worked in home as some sort of um, assistant to a counselor, mm -hmm. and then because of that experience, they go into a counseling program. Right. Those are the only people who actually have the experience of working in home with with people. Right. Or the or the select few who actually enter. So like myself, because I didn't even know this was a thing. Um, where thank goodness for our, my master's program, they brought in agencies and people who were looking for interns. Um, or on an intern level. Yeah, 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 on an intern level. And we had a fair and we got to talk with others um, or we got to see their presentations to us on what it is that they could offer and how we could learn and grow as students who could who were, uh, eventually become clinicians in the field. And that was my first exposure to it, to in-home. Hmm. Hmm. But every program doesn't have a fair. Right. A lot of students have to go out and just find their own intern. Internships. Internships. Yeah. 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 I like that. So what else besides, besides, you know, teachers and programs setting it up so students have access to people who are working mm -hmm. in homes? What else, what else would, I mean, if I gave you a million dollars and said, Denise, go with your own program. This is my this is my selfishness. But you gave me a million dollars, right? So thank you. I can do what I want. You didn't give me any stipulations on this million. I didn't give you okay, no stipulations. Okay, so I can do what I want to do. Um, I would take a portion of that money and help to merge the academic world and the community world supervision. Supervisions. Because another thing that came up in my study is just students the uncertainty of what to do. Like you have an academic supervisor and you have a site supervisor. Who do I listen to? Mm. And when I ask the question of, well, how much communication do they typically have? Most of them said, I don't think they ever even, at, uh, unless I give them an evaluation that they need to uh, fill out for me and I have to take it back. That's about the only communication that my supervisors have ever had. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen, and I would love to get your feedback on this, is that different supervisors literally supervise from completely different worlds. Yes. So my academic supervisor might supervise from, this is how you might think about it from this model, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that model may or may not make sense in an in-home an in setting. Correct. And then my site supervisor, the person who actually works with me at, at the job, is thinking about it from 
ultimately this business survives by, by billing. Mm-hmm. So ultimately you have to bill. Right. Right. And absolutely, you know, with a therapeutic bent, but there's still that underlying idea of you have to bill. Mm-hmm. And those are completely contradictory. Like those, those don't even live in the same reality. No. Um, no. I mean, have, have you experienced that? Is that something that, um, like just personally, yeah. have I felt that pressure? Have you felt, have you, have you seen that, that conflict between that, the academic oh. advisors and the site supervisors? Yeah, I have. Um, so funny. I think I vaguely remember my academic supervisor asking like, how are y'all able to do this? Like, how are you able to work in the home? And I, and I literally was like, Hmm, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean, being in it more now, I understand like how, um, especially just with all the changes with, with Medicaid now in the state of Louisiana is totally different from when I began working. Um, because at one time we only had one state, one provider in the state, whereas now we have like six um, and everybody has different, you know, insurance providers. But I didn't understand that basically it's, uh, it's written in these laws or, or, or just in the contracts that if, as long as I'm working under someone that was licensed, I could work and we could bill for me. But even things of that sort, we, you don't, you don't get any of that type of education of how managed care works. Like you just know that managed care says what I can do. We know that managed care gives you a certain amount of sessions, says that you should be done in this amount of time and these problems that are being presented. Like this is the problem that needs to be presented in order for them to get approved. This is what needs to be done while they're in services. And once they're done with services, all everything has disappeared. Like you have gone in and you worked this great magic. And then on my our end, as the people that are actually going in there, what do, what do you mean? Like, I can't even, I can't even meet with this person. <laughs> like, I can't even meet with this person. One of my biggest, and this is at post-graduation and working, you know, towards licensure or whatnot. One of my biggest resistant moments was being an MST therapist, having to look for resources for a family who was about to get evicted. And my biggest thing is that I didn't go to school for this. I want to be a therapist. I'm not a social worker. Social workers do this. But MST says, no, you do this, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you can't begin to work on the therapeutic issues that a family is having if they don't have that hierarchy yeah, of needs is not being met. And I'm like, so it's like either, you know, you put up, you, 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 you conform to it or you keep bucking the system. And I was like, I'm not a fighter for too long. It exerts too much energy, but, um, so yeah, I've definitely experienced that 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 basically clash of the titans of trying to make this model work or make these these theories that we've learned fit in a home environment when it's so much I mean home environment and as well as just in the managed care environment. This is what I've been taught to do and this is what I want to do. How do I make this fit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt some of that. You know, I worked at um, a hospital as basically mm-hmm. a caseworker, right? Okay, yeah. Getting, getting people into housing, doing yeah. groups, doing, you know, intakes. And it's like, man, I got my doctorate in counseling <laughs> to call grandparents and see, you know, yeah. if people can stay with them. Like, that's Yeah, really. really yeah. Can, and then they get mad at you and then you're like, whoa, I'm just trying to do my job. <laughs> no, they can't stay with me. Okay. Yeah. 
but yeah, that that is it's a, it is a uh, a most most humbling um, position to be in. Yes, it is. It is, man. Um. So yeah, you definitely felt that. And so if I gave you that money, you would make sure that the supervisors are on the same page. Because mm-hmm. it's about- so, I just feel like like supervision is like one of those. It's so important to the development, to the overall development. Like as 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 a, because even though we're only required to have those, you know, however long that you are trying to accrue your hours, that's when you need to be in supervision. But supervision is needed for the for the duration of a career. In my opinion, yeah. it is. So it is. So take us into the home. Like if I was the shadow you for a week. Which I would probably only do for a week because I'm also not at home and I don't want to do it anymore ever again. <laughs> okay. I would have shadow okay. you for a week and we were to follow you around. Like, what's a typical week? So, a typical week, yeah. A typical week for me is I start out on Mondays. Like, I make sure to go to work on Mondays because I like to kind of <laughs> have. <laughs> Well, I mean, first of all, it's it's contract. So, I mean, it's flexible. It's Denise paced, quote unquote, paced. I mean, as much as I can pace it. Um, it's, I schedule, you know, all my clients. I try to be consistent about those times in which I meet. Which, um, let me just jump in for a second. Because I think, I mean, for me, this was a whole new world. Okay. Right? I mean, my parents growing up always taught me, go to work, go to school, work hard, get a good job. Because then you have benefits and all this other stuff. But you're in a world where your contracts, you don't have any of that. I don't have any of that. And I'm feeling it now. I'm feeling it now because of the fact that I'm so close to being finished with everything else. Like my priorities have changed. Um, At the time in which I was working on my, you know, really working on my PhD, um, taking classes and all of those things, I needed that flexibility. I couldn't, an eight to five didn't really, wasn't really feasible for how I was maneuvering and kind of growing as a student but now that i'm at the end of this road i need to wake up at six every morning and be at home by five i need that like i feel as if i need that i do and this has been i'm struggling i'm just being transparent i'm struggling right now with um getting home when it's dark because a lot of my clients i can't see them until they get home from school Mm. So that means my day doesn't start until three. My work day, like my actually client contact doesn't start until three o'clock. I'm getting home at eight or nine o'clock in, in, in nighttime. I don't want to live that life anymore. Right. So right. that's a, that's been a, and that's forever been a, I think a struggle for me. Even when I was in school full time, it was always a sense of guilt that at noon I was still at home, maybe working on paperwork. Whereas I knew everybody else in the, in the work world, was like at eight, yeah. Get out, yeah. So, um, so your contract is Monday morning. You can choose to go in at eight because that's when you try to go in for your yeah. for your clients that that you scheduled. Okay, what happens next? Um, as far as like, what does the rest of my day look like? Yeah, what's your what's the rest of your day? So, like I say, on Monday, really, like I say, now since school is in, my day doesn't start of clients until three. So I may work on some notes. Um, I have been, I think a week or two ago, I was drawing together my final 
uh, draft of my dissertation to send off to my committee and, and things of that sort. So I may grocery shop during the daytime. <laughs> I may wash, you know, like some of those household things that need to be taken care of. I, um, I do do some of that. I always kind of wonder what my neighbors think about me because my car is in the driveway. <laughs> Literally. I do. I do. I always think like, oh, I bet they're wondering how I pay my bills. Okay. They just don't know. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Monday you try to schedule clients and I'm guessing mm-hmm. you try to schedule as many as you can on a Monday. On a Monday, yeah, because that, that, that kind of that sets the tone for my week. Sets the tone for your week. But you mm-hmm. really can't get that started until three. That's when people are, are off from work so you can go see them. Yeah. So three parents days, are at like home. Three day. are at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A three so, day. Yeah. So three day, you're, you're just seeing clients. Well, I'm driving as well. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's not like I get to see them back to back. So depending on where my cases are, I could be, you know, only seeing two or three clients because it's like a 30, maybe 45 minute drive in between them. Wow. Sometimes. Wow. So yeah, the driving aspect as well. And how many hours of client contact, like on that Monday, will you get? Mm, I will typically. I will try to get. I will try to get. Well, to, since I'm in crisis right now, I, my my client load fluctuates. So anywhere between four to six hours. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you get four to six hours. You know, between three mm-hmm. to eight, and then the rest of that time is just you driving around, trying to find people, trying to get up to their house. Trying to get to their house because honestly, I have to be. I don't know what it is. Like I've never really had clients. I I can count on one hand how many clients like kind of duck and dodge me. Like I always kind of look at other people. I'm like, what am I doing? Because my people actually meet with me. Like my people. That's that I can honestly say that I've never experienced it to a point where it really hurt me financially. But yeah, trying to find homes. Yeah. That's that can be a. Uh, a problem. Be a problem and you have to do that because if you don't meet with them then you don't get paid and if you don't get correct. paid you don't have any money correct right yeah. so is that monday tuesday wednesday thursday like it depends it depends because sometimes monday doesn't go as planned so if monday doesn't go as planned then friday has to be you know a full work day like tomorrow will be a work a full work day for me because i got new cases on monday and I wasn't able to schedule with them until maybe like Wednesday, some of them, the ones that I already had. So a couple of, one closed out. One family is like super busy every day of the week. So I don't see them that as much as, you know, the program would want me to. Um, and so the new ones, you know, just trying to fit them in somewhere and also not being just out of respect, like not being at someone's house at nine or ten o'clock at night either so just trying to see how they fit in um tomorrow will be a full work day wow so it sounds like the bulk of your week is monday through thursday you know three mm-hmm. to eight and then friday's a catch-up day yeah anything that you didn't get during the week anybody that you missed anybody who had to reschedule anybody who you didn't get to later in the week right you catch them on friday yeah it's my catch-all 
as I mean, as someone who's been out of it out of it for a while, just patch your stuff on the back and just throw so it in much. my face. <laughs> three to eight. Oh, every it does, every night. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, three to eight. Like, no I just wanna, Yeah, I just want to come home. I don't want to. I'm home. <laughs> I mean, I think some of that is, uh, you know, when I was doing in home, things were different. And I think that this is probably going to change, mm-hmm. but, and it's probably different state to state, which means it's also going to change state to state um, because we could bill and we could go into schools. And I know that in the past, what, three or four years that I was mm-hmm. doing in-home, that was something that shifted. So you could, after, well, excuse me, after about my first year, you could not go into the schools anymore. Mm-hmm. Which means that your day then really couldn't start until kids were out of school, right? Um, and that's about the time when I got out of the in-home game. Okay. You know. Okay. Um, but I, I mean, for me, that was one of the things that was also like this hidden pressure of things were always changing, and yeah. and it wasn't necessarily anything that my agency could control. Right. I can't control because- the school board for Louisiana says no more, you know, therapists in the schools. Right. Yeah. I can't control that. You can't. And the agency can't, agency can't control agency that. Agency can't control so, that, no. You know, they can fight as much as they, they, they can for that and try to help, you know, school boards and, and schools or whatnot to see the importance of it. But at the end of the day. So I find it funny. One of my um cases, like, this was a school that was, like, very adamant about no therapists in. But the case that I got the child, like, they needed somebody in. Then it was like, hey, don't forget, like, we, we haven't been allowed. Like, I know you say the, a lot of the issues are happening in school, but we're not allowed in there. And like, no, no, send them. Send them in. <laughs> so that's one of the trends now. It's like things are kind of getting so rough and people are like so overwhelmed. Administrators and staff are just so overwhelmed. Like, send whoever you can. Send, ref- you know, <laughs> we, we need refuge from this, from what's going on. So th- I think that it's, uh, again, another change that's having to be um, – <clears throat> I mean, one of those issues that's having to be readdressed because now it seems as if schools are probably going to have to begin to let more outside therapists in, yeah. especially if they don't do anything about having in-home, I mean, you know, in-school, right. school-based therapists. So. But you don't think it would actually be that difficult. I think this is one of the weird things about therapy is like, when I was in school, I was, when I was in the schools, mm-hmm. I was shocked and how much free time students had. Tell me more. Because I haven't been in school in forever. Like a secondary school. I haven't. Like in like in like a high school, right? Like you go into okay. a, a high school, mm-hmm. kids got a PE, mm-hmm. he's got a home ec, he's got a free period, he's got a study period, he's got math and he's got English. And you're like okay. and then he's out by like one fifteen, you're like, like, what are you doing all day? Yeah. And so it's just to me it's weird that like schools do have counselors, but mm-hmm. the counselors don't do counseling. No, and school counselors aren't supposed to. Honestly, that's like in their ethics. Like that's in their like they're not supposed to do like long term. Really? Yeah, counseling because you know like well the listeners don't know, but I taught at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater for a year, and um, just looking at ASCA, which is the Association for School Counselors, um, the American School Counselor Associate Association. Excuse me, ASCA. Um, if you look like in their um, 
like their ethics or whatnot. Like, no, school councils do not do like long term interventions. Well, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me that you wouldn't have counselors who are in the very community that they need to be serving, right? Like, that doesn't Mm -hmm. make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that, that doesn't, especially when kids have, kids have time. I mean, really, you can pull a kid out of a class, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And there's certain core subjects you don't want kids to miss. But besides those, you know, besides your reading, besides your writing, besides your, your math. Right. Um, I mean, kids can come out for 45 minutes. That's just, that is just strange. I think. I know from what, um, and honestly, this is like basic common sense to me because, I mean, I think to us, like the way that we're talking right now, this is like common sense to us, but to other people is like, no, they have, like, this is their focus. This is what they, they have to do. And it's, and it's to me, it's the asking the question of, okay, well, let's weigh this out. Like, would you rather sacrifice maybe, you know, one day a week? even them being in a core subject when they are having these emotional outbursts or what and whatnot, whatever behavior issue is being presented, or would you like to try to keep them in the classroom with this behavior um, presenting and with the understanding that other children will also be disrupted by this. So it's kind of like a domino effect. Which one would you rather? And to me, common sense, you know, is like, well, let's try to handle this now because it's always best to handle things on the front end rather to let it fester and grow. It's kind of like an infection or whatever. You want to look at, and now you have to put in all these antibiotics and multiple rounds of things to kind of remedy it. Whereas if we kind of just dealt with it on the front end, it wouldn't be as bad. But that's common sense to us. And like literally having to explain it. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't make any, I mean, I mean, what do school counselors do? I know that's a a very ignorant question, but I'm I'm ignorant of that. I mean, besides the, besides the, I remember very clearly going to EAP meetings, right? Okay. EAP, I'm sorry. Um, IEP. IEP meetings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you'd have a school counselor. Mm-hmm. You'd have a school social worker. You'd have mm-hmm. a school psychologist. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have you and a wraparound worker. And I'm just <laughs> like, why are we all here? Like, right. like, 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 how are we all doing different things? All right. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the, like, like, what are all of your roles here? Because this seems, oh. this feels like a, like it feels like a lot of resources mm-hmm. that aren't. <laughs> I'm getting real personal now. Okay, get personal. Aren't doing anything. Like everybody's right. passing the buck, really. Okay. Okay. So. I don't know, and I mean, and so well, I as, that, as someone who's but, who's who's worked in the schools more than I have, and mm-hmm. and knows the the school the, the the school counseling world more than I do. Like mm-hmm. to a, to a, to a, to an extent, but because <laughs> I'm not I'm not a expert on that, but I don't I don't know. Like I I agree with you because and that's part of the issue. Even in our profession, there's so much spillage and things in which we're able to do. So you have clinical social workers who identify as therapists. So it's a lot about what one aspect of it is professional identity um, and being able to differentiate between that. And so with one of the questions that you initially asked is like, what do school counselors do? 
Right. Honestly, a lot of school counselors are, they're dealing with more of the state administrative things. So like testing, school counselors are over testing um, that they know comes around every year at the same time. They're over scheduling classes for students. They are over, um, depending on what grade level they are, like especially high school, they are over you know, helping students find scholarships, helping them to get into school, uh, colleges, helping them to figure out what's their next route for life. Um, and un- what they're trying to, so I was just on a website, one of the middle schools here in West Monroe, their website on their counselor co- counseling corner. And it's funny that you bring this up, like you had a whole list of what, why you would go see your, um, your school counselor. And if you look at it, like when it's talking about the actual, um, art of counseling is more so just crisis intervention like we we're gonna we're gonna de-escalate whatever crisis is that you are experiencing but we're gonna also find you the person to go to for more long term because these are the things that we have to focus on the immediate so the, the like i said the testing the schedules the figuring out what's your next step in life um sometimes running groups some school counselors are able to run groups where for like to help with um emotional intelligence or bullying or just some of the immediate issues that are occurring in the school, in their specific school environment or world nationwide. Yeah. I've actually heard that before. And I think it's always struck me as odd. And and I guess the thing that I keep undervaluing is the Mm -hmm. number of students that that school counselors have to see. Yes. That's another thing. You know, because um, to me, I'm like, okay, you do testing, you do course stuff, yada, yada, yada. But really, I guess mm-hmm. if you have a school of, I don't know, 300 kids and you have mm-hmm. two school counselors. At best. At best. Right, yeah. You have to do, even scheduling for that many students is just yes. absurd. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they do, like, when we look at it from the outside looking in, it's one of those situations where it's like, well, what do you do all day? But then we don't have 300 kids on our caseload either. No, I don't. <laughs> Something that I've heard you say a few times that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing back against okay. um, is this idea of long-term, long-term, long-term. Mm-hmm. What do you, what is, what does that mean to you? Can you give me the context in which I used it in? You're talking about how like school counselors don't see people for, for. Long. Oh, okay. So they don't have, like, they don't have a caseload. So they may see a student one time, but students don't continuously come back to them. Like how, as we know, if we're going to see somebody once a week, mm-hmm. they don't have that once a week. Mm-hmm. That's what you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for for bringing me back on that. That's what I meant when I said long term. It's not a ske- regular scheduled appointment that students have. All right. Hmm. So, hence, here we are, community based counselors, uh, in home therapists. Yeah. No, I mean that. I can definitely tell that's as we're talking. I think that's more and more. I think that we just work in a strange field. Okay. Because I feel like as a student, I would be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Right. If I have an IEP and I got a social worker, 
and I got a school counselor and I got to go to a psychologist, right? Mm-hmm. Plus, I got all these teachers who I may or may not have a good relationship with. Mm-hmm. And then I got somebody coming out to my house. And that's a lot of people who are involved in my life. Yeah. That's a lot of extra people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, just thinking about it, I don't know if I've ever been in a situation where I personally have had that right. Like when I go to the, to the doctor, right? I don't even see the doctor. I just see like the nurse practitioner. Right. Right. Um, I don't have the doctor and the chiropractor and the, you know, <laughs> PT person. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, your OT. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't have them all coming into the session saying, okay, how can we help you? Right. Like I, that, that, that doesn't happen. But, you know, it's funny. We were talking before we actually started the, uh, the podcast. Like, that's another – I'm always on this privilege type, um, this privilege issue of how I try to realize my privilege in certain situations. Like, honestly, that's a privilege that you've never had to – or me as well, because I've never had to experience that as well – have to be, in one sense, be bombarded. Like, it can be looked at as being bombarded or it can be looked at as being supported. It just depends on perspective, but the way in which we're talking about it, about like being bombarded with an overage, like just being overstimulated by all of these people who are in your life for some very, honestly, for the same reason. Right. You know, if you look at it and it's like, okay, enough is enough. Like at one point it was support. Now it's just overwhelming. Who's going to help me? And if you, I mean, and this is again, my bias on it out of all of the people that are probably present, in those meetings, besides the teachers, because they definitely spend way more time with a student, even than we do as uh, as therapists, but we may know their most inner concerns. We may have spent the most time with them. We may we may have phrased our questions in a way to really learn about the underlying how, how to make this behavior, whatever behavior it is that they're presenting, would make sense, as we would say. And then we had we we're we're tagged with that that responsibility to help convey that to everybody else that's around the table. Hence the reason why we even invited to the table, why we have a seat at the table. And it's like, so why don't why don't we just cut out the middleman if we look at it that way? And let, let's just let let me just work with them, yeah. and then maybe I can just help mediate that for you all. But these meetings that I'm being invited to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt that. And mm-hmm. I think it was always, to me, that's when things got even more strange. Okay. Because it did not matter that I was the counselor. Because I was the counselor, I didn't have a voice at the table. Now, if, and so what I came to realize was, it's really my relationship with the principal, right? Mm-hmm. My relationship mm-hmm. with the guidance counselor mm-hmm. that gives me the voice at the table mm-hmm. and so for me that was also part of the in-home learning experience right it's like oh, yeah. um i mean and sometimes i think it's almost like being a salesman right like when i think of marketers and salesmen they're out there they're building relationships um they are convincing people that certain things are a good idea yeah and i didn't have any of those skills until well after I was done. But I realized once I got in, into that world, I was like, I'm not effective right now because these people aren't bought in. So when I say this kid needs this, they go, eh, okay. And then they go on and do whatever they thought they wanted to right. do anyway. Right. No, that is very true. Like, 
as far as marketing, that is, that's another aspect. And that's crazy that it didn't even come up as far as like just in my study or whatnot. But I don't think that really comes up much, too much until you actually get out on your own and you really have to, you know, drum up because right now you don't have those student loans. Like for people that live off of like, right. You know what I mean? Like you're looking like, Oh, I'll be okay. I have a little, you know, little coverage um, in the bank, but no, once you get out and you really need to be making money um, or supporting yourself, uh, marketing yourself. And honestly, that's one thing about counseling as well, even in private practice, not just like those marketing skills that you, you may have learned in the moment, they didn't feel good at all. Like having to go out and solicit, you know what I'm saying, for yourself and say, this is who I am. This is what I can do. This is how I know I can do it. This is my track record. All of this, blase, blase, it didn't feel good. It felt cheesy. It felt kind of slimy. Like, but I mean, oh, honestly, like these are things that you probably can do. But in hindsight, it's helping you out. But we didn't learn anything. You don't learn anything about marketing either in school. And so when you get out and you have to market for yourself and you have to go in people's homes, well, I mean, I would even go one further, one step further, because okay. for me, I didn't feel like I had a skill, really. You, you said you didn't feel like you had a skill. Oh no, I mean, I feel, I feel like now I know what I'm doing. Okay. Um, and I think now I know what I'm doing, and half of that is knowing what my limitations are. Okay. But definitely, when I was doing stuff before, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I, I, I mean, I honestly thought people around me were were frauds because I would ask them. <laughs> How do you like? You, you sound like you know, and no one would ever show me. And so I was like, okay. then to think that you're you're hiding because you don't believe it either, right? Hmm. So for me, I think that was one of the biggest barriers to marketing is I'm going to market myself as someone who does what works with kids. I can help. I can help your kid not go to jail, but I actually can't. <laughs> so like, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, all I can say is, yeah, because I've had, like, this is something I still wrestle with, I think, just personally. What is my role in this? Like, I have to always kind of sit back and reflect and say, what is it that I'm actually capable of doing? Because I'm not going to lie. You know, I don't want to lie to somebody and be like, oh, yeah, this, this will change in, in two weeks. Just let me come, you know, to your home in two weeks. And that's that's honestly not the truth. So where I see and I get it, like, being, like we were talking about, being a broker of hope, like, it can change. Like, these are some of the things, and this is probably, it's going to take forever. It may take a long time for this to change. And I'm not going to lie to you about this, um, because it didn't happen. It didn't just begin to happen overnight. So, marketing, but how do you, but it's like, how do you market that? I know how you market it. You say it, and you got to believe it. You know what I mean? Like, that's how you market it. And honestly, other people, I think that's that's just human nature and human fear. Like, other people don't think this is so cheesy. Like, I'm not really giving anything. I think that's why social media now is so prevalent and why why even our kids that we work with right now are so drawn into social media because it's, it's providing all these fake, this, this false perception of what's going to happen immediately. And when it doesn't, it's a hard crash. And then here we come again, having to work with some of these things because of this disappointment that comes about and us being the total opposite and saying nothing happen, happens instantly. Everything is a process. 
So even like repeating it to ourselves. Yeah. And in 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 if we look at marketing and saying, yeah, a lot of people are not gonna get this. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you're right. It's funny. I, you, you say that, and I have two thoughts that come to mind. My first thought is um, I interviewed – the last person I interviewed was a guy named Stephen Gilligan, wonderful okay. therapist, wonderful therapist. I saw him work. He's the real deal. Okay. <laughs> um, stamp of approval. Stamp of approval, yeah. It's like it's like Denise Walker and then just below him, Stephen, <laughs> Stephen, Stephen Gilligan. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> okay, you're right. He's just yeah, I know, I know. He, just he, above you, though. Like, just for like an inch, though, you know. Hey. Um, and he was a direct student of Milton Erickson, who, you know, like, if who no one knows, but he's like the, the grandfather of half a family therapy, right? Okay. Um, and so after Erickson died, after Milton Erickson died, okay. Stephen Gilligan would get all these clients from Erickson. And they realized that they all had the same problem. They would go, they had all been to Milton Erickson and had these wonderful experiences. And then they hadn't done things to continually grow. And so they were basically having problems because they hadn't rearranged their lives to maintain their gains long term. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a lot of what he does now is he calls it generative coaching. And it's all about helping people to set up systems um, and spaces so that they can tap into, like, who they really are at their core. Okay. What right. is it called again? What type of coaching? Gener- generative coaching. Generative. Okay. Right. Um, and I think that connects to what you're saying because basically what he said was, you know, people went to Erickson with these problems. Mm-hmm. And the problems got fixed. They did not rearrange their lives to for their own benefit long-term, right? right. Okay. So like if, I have, if I have serious anxiety attacks, I go to Erickson, I get better. Mm-hmm. And then later on when something happens, um, because I haven't set up my, my life so that when the bottom falls out, I know how to handle stress. Right, okay. So yeah, basically what Stephen Gilligan does is he helps people set up systems Mm-hmm. to long-term uh, be at their best. Okay. Um, I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying about, like, are we setting things up long-term for people to, to succeed, or are we just, you know, dealing with the problem in, in, in the moment? Right. Yeah. And I honestly think just with the clientele that we work with, because, like, if we go back to the, the, the concept of privilege and things of that sort, like, some of what we do is kind of like, putting out fires yeah. like if we can just get through the, this if we can get through this week we're doing great yeah. but it doesn't necessarily i don't think we're we afforded the opportunity to even begin to look at long term like how to set clients in in home sometimes up for long-term success yeah. just because of the managed care system like we don't I mean, and that's not only just with in-home but it's like office work too sometimes where you only have these certain amount of sessions and people's lives don't revolve around a, a determined amount of sessions. Right. Yeah, I've actually come to this point where I think, um, I think I'm actually coming back around to a deep belief in 
in brief therapy. Okay. And not because, like, when I was initially taught brief therapy, like solution-focused brief therapy, right? Mm-hmm. It was it was as though it was superior. Mm-hmm. We do things faster, better, quicker than other models. Mm-hmm. That's not really true. But no. I do think it is true with how people uh, use therapy. Okay. I mean, I've read, I've been reading a lot of research articles on on really effective therapists and people who come in. And if you're a good therapist, people come in for like one to five sessions. Yeah. People, people, people do not. And this is in, in, in private practice or in college settings, right? Okay. People, people don't come in. The majority of people don't come in for six, seven months, mm-hmm. which, which really makes me think, what do people want when they come in? Yeah. People are looking for um, a place to be heard. People are looking for a return to what is their normal. Okay. They are not. The majority of people who coming who are coming in aren't looking for deep personal growth. You know, <laughs> and so yeah. I, I think that we're almost. If if we think if we have that expectation, we're going to be disappointed time after time again. Like you know what I mean? People even I and I guess for me that's like so. If this is what happens in the private practice world, okay. The, the world outside of it has to be even more that, you know. Yeah. I do. I hear what you're saying, that that how much of that is actually client-driven and how much of that is our own ego in saying, like, no, this is of us trying to get people where we believe that we are. Right. Because I like to think that I'm a self-actualized person. I like to think that I'm very self-aware. I like to think that, you know, I take time out to reflect on my life and where I am and I'm t- intentional about the direction that my life is going in and that I try to stay present with it. But is everybody else? And just because that's something that I, I desire or I, I work towards, does that make me any better than anybody who doesn't or doesn't do it the way in which I do it? I think I'm struggling with that right now. Yeah. Just personally, personally, not even on a clientele basis, but just within myself. Yeah. So I'm, I wonder. I am I am sold on this idea, and this is not a popular idea at all. Mm-hmm. And it will never catch on. I am sold on the idea that you know all those things that you said are healthier ways of being. Mm-hmm. I also think it just doesn't matter if people don't want it. And, no. I, and I think yeah. certain people, and that's okay. If somebody does not want to be reflective, even though that is a better, healthier way of being human, that's, that's, that's their decision. Like this is America, right? Yeah. As, as the prophet childish Gambino says, this is America. <laughs> so. he's, def- he's definitely a prophet. I appreciate that. We're <laughs> so. kindred spirits in there. But so, like, you know, let, let, let them do what they do. So going back to that, Jordan, that has always been a struggle of mine in counseling or in therapy. I struggle with that so badly. Like I remember, and it always comes up for me. So it honestly, it's not an unpopular opinion. I just don't think that it's a wide, it's a very discussed opinion because of the stigma, because this is what therapy is supposed to be about. I think that's what it is because I'm there with you. Um, working with so many juvenile um, youth, well, I mean, with, with, with average youth and their families and just seeing 
their life and what it is that they've been through, I always had, I always felt like a tug at my heart. Like why I was always angry with the, with when we, I would leave out of meetings with the, with the judges and the POs and all of these types of things. I'm like, why? Like, yes, what they're doing is illegal. We're not going to say that by law, what they're doing is wrong. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like I'm a law abiding citizen to a fault. Like I, I do, you know, whatever. Um, but who are we to tell them the way in which they are functioning is wrong. Like I know it's wrong because of the law, but who are we as individuals, as human beings to sit up here and say like, no, you have to conform to this. Like you have to change this without, and I think without taking into, into, into consideration those other circumstances. Yeah. I don't know what it's like to not know you know, if my life's going to be on when I get home. I don't know. I've never had to live like that. So for me to sit up here and say, like, you just need to do better. Like, you just need to be more reflective. You just need to look at your life and, and, and reflect back over your life and see where, what moment it is that you, you know, became, began to morph into this person or whatnot. So I. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think you bring up two really interesting points. And, you know, I think. I think some of that is just how America is set up. Mm-hmm. America was built on this myth of like this hyper, hyper rugged individualism. Very. But what we miss is like the only people who you see are the people who succeeded in that, right? Right. And so like I was literally just talking to my wife about the, the Oregon Trail and all those people mm-hmm. who were not there, right? But yeah. just think about it. The people who write the books are the people who survived – and they have crazy stories. You don't exactly. you don't read the stories of the people who went out there and died of dysentery within a week. Exactly. Because it was so crazy, right? Right. But the so the people who actually make it, those small number of people who actually make it, they write the story. Mm-hmm. And they have this hyper individualistic mindset, which helped them to survive, right? Right. But then they ignore the fact that, yeah, half of their family members had to die for them to be here. Exactly. And that mindset comes from generation to generation. So you get to these kids and you say, look, why can't you be like so-and-so and and just push through, you know? Yeah, yeah. Why can't you be like, well, when I was a kid, you said Ben Ben Carson. I don't think you can say that anymore. I don't think you can say that anymore. First thing about it, that was the first, like, book. Like, the first book that I remember. Yes, get it. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Like, that was my thing. My uncle bought me this book, and I read it cover to cover. Yeah. I was like, yeah. Yeah. I like him. Yeah, and then I started learning all the history, like John Johns Hopkins and all this mess. I was like, eh, forget y'all. Like, no, thank you." But um, um, so no, I'm I'm well with you. I, I think that there's a survivorship bias mm-hmm. that that, and so that's like the story it. that gets told when it's just not true. It's just is that a term? Has that been coined? Uh, Jordan Harris. Tia. Okay, I'm about to say you better you because <laughs> I like that survive. Yes, but, but that's oh my goodness, that's so true. It's so true. I'm gonna give you one more uh, story, and then I and then I gotta go. Okay. So I just got a, a a Marco Polo from a friend of mine mm-hmm. who's seeing a client, and it's a it's um a couple, and this couple she was referred from another therapist, and this other therapist does intensive weekends, right? Mm-hmm. So what what that means is people fly out to see him in Colorado, mm-hmm. they pay four thousand dollars for a three-day weekend of intensive therapy. Um, 
And now this couple is saying my friend because they're having trouble. Okay. After. Right. Okay. Right. And I just feel like this fits in so well with what we're talking about. Because I think that the change process, I think that there's a a tipping point where the change process turns into a growth process. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still think that like, these people are people of the utmost privilege, right? Yeah. To have the money and the time and the childcare, you know, to fly out and the, and the cultural awareness to know where to go, right? To fly out to see somebody who's an expert in doing this work. Mm-hmm. And to have all of those things going for you and you get back and six months later, things still aren't really good you know you're still having issues with the affair that happened yada 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 right i just think this this is a hard job it's a very hard job i know it's a very hard job because i'm sitting here as you're talking about it i'm thinking about what could potentially have transpired in that intensive weekend that was worth four thousand dollars. That was worth four thousand dollars. I don't know, man. It must have been magic. It it been had, but it wasn't. Either either the Poor clinician man. either clinician was given magic and the magic that they were given just wasn't suitable for the couple for a long term. Or the couple just feels as if it kind of goes back to that triangle type situation where they need somebody to kind of create that, that stability for them. Like we just have to be seeing somebody. Because yeah. for me, after four thousand dollars, I'd be healed. Oh, healed! I'd even if I wasn't, Jesus, I'd be you hear me? <laughs> even if I wasn't, oh no, baby, I just spent four thousand dollars. I know we're good. Oh, we're gonna be together forever. Like, and we're not gonna have no more problems. We literally gonna be Cinderella in the Prince. Yeah, like, we're gonna be good. Uh, so yeah, that's that. The utmost privilege, though, like you're saying, even the resources to know that this is even available. And for me to think, think as a still a pretty novice clinician, and to feel comfortable too, right? Yeah. And I say that as someone you know who like I've been to a therapist, and I def- I've been to three therapists. I okay. definitely felt more comfortable with, with with my black therapist than my white therapist. And my white one of them was really good. Mm-hmm. And it's like I don't know if a black therapist who does intensives that you know. That's what so, I was just you you were reading my mind, Jordan, because I was like even as a novice like. 10 years from now, can I see myself feeling that confident in what I do? You got to say, feel like, you have to feel ballsy. <laughs> and I, like, it's so much cultural, like, just rigmarole that's brought into that. Because, like, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to negate any chance of somebody coming to see me for $4,000. I'm like, who would come to see me for $4,000 for three days? Like I'm gonna say that. Like I, I need. I, I mean, that's that's gonna take some deep, you know, some work to get kind of get through that and say like, no, you could be worth it. But still, I don't even know if I would feel right charging somebody four thousand dollars. I don't think I feel right. I think I, I think for four thousand dollars, I would need to be able to guarantee you a, like a few things. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. And I and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. They said social media culture. Like people just want something. I, I need to feel so connected to something and I'm willing to risk and I'm willing to pay whatever to, to get that, that, that peace of mind that, Oh yeah, we're in the right place. We're in the right direction. This is going to have, this is going to work for us. $4,000. Man. 
that's uh, mm. you made somebody somebody three times somebody's salary in three days. Some people, you know what I mean? What they making a month? Some people making two yeah. months. I mean, if you do one of those like a month, like you're doing pretty good for the for a month of what you get getting paid compared yes. to how much you're. I would probably live on. I probably quit my job if I was. That I would be long. done in that one week. Honestly, <laughs> but think about it. Just think about the recuperation that comes with it. Like as a therapist, being with a couple for three days intensively like that, I wouldn't want to work no more that month anyway because my brain would be shot. I would be so overloaded by like, no, don't anybody talk to me. I would have to take at least a week to decompress from this. Yeah, but then you would say things like. I just got to go to the mountains and, and just get away and just recharge. You know that's, what I mean? so, <laughs> that's what you do. When you I, get just, I, just, I just need to go and like go to the spa and just have a day. Cause I just can't right now. <laughs> that's what you say. Stuff you like that. Yeah. I just can't. I just can't. <laughs> I just can't even. <laughs> right. You got to put the even on there. You to stop it. But no, that's. <laughs> wow. People aren't going to like this. This episode. This is going to go. This is going to get me into a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that as we were talking. I was like, oh, Jordan. I just need to go to the beach. I know. Hey, we're going to get there one day. We're gonna one day. Me and one you day. Gonna, yeah, we're going to be charging. By the time we get there, it's going to be like $6,000. $6,000 in, in Bitcoin. <laughs> Give me 6000 Bitcoin. Press one, press one button and we yeah. get our money. So, yeah, people not, might not like this one. Maybe a little controversial. Might be a little controversial. All right. Well, my friend, thank you for coming on. I enjoyed it. I enjoy speaking with you as well. Thank you so much for the invitation. All right.